So, Father, we do ask that you just bless this time in the study of your word. And, Lord, I pray that as we see these uh, words that are inspired by you, written down, put to the page for all eternity, that uh, there is something here for us. And there's an admonition, there is uh, exhortation given to us as we learn what happens to individuals, to a nation that turns against you, Lord, that uh, gets involved in that which is false, and then it leads to other things um, that uh, will uh, end up causing terrible repercussions and consequences. So, Lord, um, yes, these are difficult, difficult words to read at times, but there's a reason for it. And, Lord, even as you wanted your uh, people here, uh, the house of Israel, to produce good fruit unto you, they didn't. They produced bad fruit. That you were betrothed. They were betrothed to you, um, and yet they uh, were unfaithful to you. And, and the analogies that we read about, Lord, um, it's a message for us. That you are faithful to us, and we're to be faithful to you. And Lord, we're so grateful that we have forgiveness. That Jesus came and died for our sins, and if we do sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we come and confess those sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But Lord, we desire to stay close to you and abide in you, that we may produce fruit in our lives. So just touch our hearts right now as we study your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Ezekiel chapter 15, remember Ezekiel is off in the captivity uh, in Babylon as he's given these words, um, and it is getting closer to where Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Uh, the, the first deportation in 605, that's when the 70 years of captivity would begin, where Daniel went off into captivity, but then Ezekiel was in the second deportation in 597 B.C. So he begins to minister and give the word of the Lord during that time, which 11 years later would be the destruction of Jerusalem. And what we're going to read here in chapters 15 and 16 of Ezekiel is there's a lot of poetic language that is being used here that God is expressing his disappointment, his hurt on the unfaithfulness of God's people. He's going to talk about Jerusalem, uh, the city that, that he chose, uh, and uh, how uh, Jerusalem had uh, the people there, the religious leaders had forsaken the Lord, and God's love for Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem's harlotry. And those are the terms that we're going to be reading about. And in chapter 15, he talks about uh, this outcast vine, as we read, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood, the vine branch which is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can man make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. It, is it useful for any work? Verse 5. Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it has burned? So what we're reading here is the vine from a grapevine is not good for making anything. It's not good for making furniture. You can't even make a peg out of it, as uh, the word is telling us. So it's thrown into the fire and it's uh, burned in the fire. 
It is devoured. That's all really the, the vine is good for uh, after it is used for its purpose. And we know what the purpose of the vine was, and that is to produce fruit. Let's finish the chapter because it's a short chapter, only eight verses long. But in verse 6, Therefore thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, and they will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. So we know in this poetic language of using the term vine, that the vine isn't good for making wood. It isn't good for even making a peg, so it's thrown into the fire. There was one purpose of the vine. There's one thing that it did produce, and that was it was to make fruit. And we know that as we go through even the Old Testament, and there's reference in the New Testament, that God desired for his people to produce godly fruit. Um, They were likened to a, a vineyard. Matter of fact, you might recall in Isaiah's book, that Isaiah prophesied against uh, the children of Israel, the house of Israel, uh, in chapter 5, and he tells of the God's disappointing vineyard. Let me read it to you. But uh, as we read it, we read that, uh, that uh, it is, my be- well-beloved has a vineyard, in chapter 5 of Isaiah, on a very fruitful hill, He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Then I expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth rotten grapes, wild grapes. Here we see with Ezekiel speaking again, the emphasis is going to be on Jerusalem because they've begun to go off into captivity, but now they're heading towards the destruction of Jerusalem. And he wanted his people to bear fruit, to be a good vineyard. He says in Isaiah chapter 5, in, in likening you know, Jerusalem and Judah to a good vineyard, they should have been because I gave you everything you, you needed. Choice uh, uh, vines, you had uh, the best fertile soil, you had a wall around it, uh, water that was there, a wine press in, in the middle, and you, the expectation was that you were to bring forth good fruit, but you brought forth bad fruit. And it's interesting, when you go to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 20, uh, right before Jesus would go to the cross, that he tells the religious leaders, uh, as they are coming against Jesus, and um, they're mounting their opposition, trying to trap him, questioning his authority, and Jesus tells the parable, the wicked vine dressers, and I'll read that to you. He began to tell the people this parable, so the, the religious leaders are questioning his integrity, his um, doctrine, they're questioning his authority. 
And he said, A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. So he's talking about this this vineyard leased to the vine dressers, and that is uh, the religious leaders. And here, as we see, Ezekiel has been addressing those religious leaders that you are false, the false message that you're giving. And, and we've seen that indictment quite clearly. And here, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, that they were corrupt as well. And, of course, we're seeing that going through Matthew's gospel. So this, this vineyard, at least to the vine dressers, that the owner of the vineyard would send his servants to the vine dressers to, to receive that good fruit, the portion that belonged to the owner. But yet we see that the vine dressers were the ones that uh, were uh, persecuting the servants. And, of course, we see that with Jeremiah, with Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, the prophets that came to them, and, and yet they were persecuted. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. And those religious leaders hearing this parable knew that Jesus was talking about them. He knew he was talking about the nation uh, because they were familiar with Ezekiel uh, here, chapter 15. They were familiar with Isaiah chapter 5. But then it's interesting that when the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Um, I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance may be ours. So in that parable, he talks about that, how he's going to be put to death uh, by those religious leaders. And you can read that, and there's more to it in that parable. But as we connect here, what the scriptures is saying is Israel was to be like a vineyard that produced great fruit to be a blessing and a benefit, not only for them, for their nation, but also for others as well. And we're going to see that, that the Lord is going to talk about Jerusalem, the love he had for Jerusalem, how he provided for Jerusalem, and they were to be a testimony to the other nations. But they gave in to the gods of the other nations. And as we consider this, you might think, well, what does it mean for us? We know that after that parable of the, the wicked vine dressers that Jesus tells, a short time later, he would then tell his disciples that uh, I am the vine and that you abide in me, that the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Jesus is the vine, and we are to abide in him, stay connected to him. And as we do, that we're going to bear fruit. We cannot bear fruit unto God unless we're abiding in Christ. And that's a very important message for you and for me. So I want to encourage all of you tonight uh, that you continue to just abide in Christ. Abide in his word, he goes on to say in John chapter 15, and abide in his love. And as we do that, we will produce fruit. Jesus said you'll produce much fruit, and it will be fruit that will remain. So my prayer is that we continue to abide in the vine because God wants to produce fruit 
in your life. And they had not produced fruit. Jerusalem would be devoured. It's going to be burned. There's going to be fire, just as that, that branch of a vine is burnt because it's, after it's produced fruit or it dies back, it's not good for making furniture or anything. And Jerusalem, uh, because you're not producing any fruit, you're going to end up being burned by the Babylonians. Chapter 16, he begins to speak of God's love for Jerusalem. And then it's a long chapter. We'll go through it. And, and then Jerusalem's harlotry. But a lot of poetic language, again, being used here. We do read in chapter 16, again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As, verse 4, your nativity. On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you uh, to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out in the open field when you yourself were loath in the day that you were born. And so Jerusalem was a Canaanite city. It's interesting. When Joshua came into the promised land, they conquered a lot of the land. But they didn't conquer all of the promised land. There, there were still uh, the, the Canaanite tribes, different tribes. You have the Canaanites. You have the Amorites uh, that are listed here, the Hittites, the other ites that were in the land. And the uh, Jebusites, uh, another tribe of the Canaanites, were uh, on that hill, Mount Moriah, that overtook that area. And it wasn't until uh, David comes along, uh, you know, 500 years later, after Joshua comes into the promised land, that he conquers uh, that Mount Moriah, where the Jebusites were at. You read about that in First Chronicles chapter 11. But the Am- Amorites and the Hittites uh, occupied the land uh, that God would give to Israel. And the world and the other nations didn't care about Jerusalem. It was like a newborn that was not cared for, as we see the analogy that we just read. Not, not you know, taken care of, not washed, not uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, Jerusalem is an absolutely incredible city with an incredible history. When the children of Israel were to go into the promised land, that the Lord said, listen, don't just sacrifice anywhere. Don't sacrifice in those high places and those wooden groves that I will select a place that you are to sacrifice. And, of course, it would be at the tabernacle there as they brought the tabernacle into the land. But eventually, as David desired to build a temple, and David didn't build it, the Lord said, your hands are bloodied, your son Solomon is, that David would know that the temple was to be built on Mount Moriah. We read about that at the end of Second Samuel. And we know that, uh, that God had chosen Jerusalem to be his holy city. And, and Jerusalem is 3,000 years old now. And the history of Jerusalem, um, and it's interesting that Jerusalem today is the center of controversy. Uh, much of the upheaval and uh, things that are going on in the Middle East, and it affects the whole world. It's always in the news. Uh, who owns Jerusalem is the debate. And Jerusalem, as we look at that city, it's not a strategic location where Jerusalem is. It's in the hills of 
Israel there. It's not a port city. Uh, there's no resources. There's no oil that's there or um, gold or anything like that. Uh, it is not by a major river. Uh, but today, it's the most controversial city in the world. And as we're going to see here, and as we have seen, that it is God's holy city. He birthed and cared for that city uh, before it was cast out in the open field and unwanted. And so Jerusalem has also incredible future as well as we're going to see continuing through Ezekiel. But in verse 6, when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, blood live. I made you thrive like a plant in a field. You grew mature and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew and you were naked and bare. Again, the poetic language. Verse 8 we read, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into the covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. So the Lord is again expressing his love for Jerusalem as uh, he made Jerusalem the great city that it was. And indeed it was. When David came and he conquered the Jebusites and, and Solomon would come and build the, the first temple, you can read about that in First Kings and also in Second Chronicles, that it was a magnificent temple. Uh, we don't have any pictures of it, but we have the description given to us, overlaid with gold and the ornate stones and the thousands upon thousands of workers for seven years that were working, you know, 70,000, 80,000 there on the site in the quarries, 30,000 bringing in the, the lumber, an incredible, incredible project as they built the temple. And it was a beautiful, beautiful city. And it was the place of sacrifice and worship. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of the Lord filled Jerusalem, filled the temple to where the priests couldn't minister anymore. It was glorious, a glorious city. And, and of course, uh, we know that um, it would continue to be so, but now it's going to be destroyed. Even during the time of Jesus, Jerusalem, and you can see a model when you go to Israel today. We go to the Museum of Israel, and we see a model of uh, Jerusalem. And the second temple was magnificent as well. And it is a city that is going to, again, be the wonder of the world when the Lord comes back and sets up his kingdom. Uh, it was the city where Messiah died. It's the Messiah word, uh, the city where Messiah is going to reign again. So Jerusalem is an absolutely incredible city with its history and also with its future. God would take Jerusalem as his own as he expresses here. And then in verse 9 we read, Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed you off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you uh, in embroidered, uh, embroidered clothes and gave you sandals of uh, badger skins. I clothed you in the fine linen and covered you with silt. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. 
And verse 14, your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect, though my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. So Jerusalem would be betrothed to God. He would anoint her with oil, clothe her with splendor, befitting a queen. And during the reign, as I said, of David and Solomon, Jerusalem was spectacular. So much wealth and prosperity that rocks in Jerusalem, you know, silver in Jerusalem was like rocks, is what the scripture says. There was so much silver. There was so much gold. You know, the splendor of Jerusalem. Leaders came from all over to see Solomon's reign in Jerusalem. And it, it was all of a sudden, as we're seeing, it was initially from rags, as he said, I saw your nakedness to riches, and now it's going to be destroyed. As God talks more about her unfaithfulness, Jerusalem's harlotry, beginning in verse 15, but you trusted in your own beauty. You played the harlot because of your fame, poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself. The high places were the places where they would worship the idols and all kinds of immorality and, and paganism took place there. That's what you did. You know, the high places for yourself, you played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. Verse 17, you have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them, and also my food, which I gave you, the pastry, the fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. So they stopped trusting God. They, in their pride and in their arrogance, began to trust in themselves and then turn and played the harlot as they turned to those idols and, and the practices of worshiping those idols in the high places. They flaunted what they had and they dressed up the high places of false worship. They took the gold, the silver that God had blessed them with and made those idols and they left their gods. So as we go through this, we need to remember going through Isaiah going through Jeremiah and going through Ezekiel particularly, and we will continue to see that when we go through the minor prophets, that it was more than they were just bowing down to an idol. Uh, and they you know, were nice people. It, it had brought repercussions of completely leaving the Lord and forsaking him and, and involved in perversity and immorality. We've already seen that. And it led to violence and, and all kinds of problems uh, in the nation. And we're going to see that as we continue, even as we go into verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters and you bore, uh, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? They weren't a small matter. You took your children's and you were sacrificing your own children, as we know from Isaiah and also from Jeremiah, that they were sacrificing their children in the Valley of Gehenna, which was just south of the Temple Mount where the, the, uh, Solomon's temple was, in the arms of Moloch. They were burning them with fire. That's how bad it was. They were doing those kinds of things. Um, and we continue in verse 
21, were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them, causing them to pass through the fire? And all of your abominations and acts of harlotry, did you not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood? In other words, they forgot where they came from and what God had done for them. And that's a dangerous place for any of us to be. Listen, we have seen that the Lord has said, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. I, I brought you out of the world. Egypt is a picture of the world. I brought you out of the slavery, the bondage, baking bricks in the hot, blistering sun. I brought you out of all of that, and I brought you into this land, and I blessed the land. I gave you an inheritance. You, you were, you know, uh, at one time, the, it was, uh, I brought you out of your nakedness, and, and I clothed you, and I did more than just clothe you. Uh, I, I adorned you with jewelry, with oil and gladness. That's what it speaks of. Uh, I, I provided for you and blessed you, and you've forgotten about that. Remember how I've given you the land. I've blessed you, what I've done for you. And they just said, We don't need you anymore, Lord. And that's a dangerous place for any of us to be. Listen, never forget what God has done for you. And providing his son to come to this world and die for you specifically, that you might be forgiven and have the hope of eternal life, a living hope, and right relationship with the Father. How he has blessed you, and we never want to take those things for granted. How the Lord has been merciful and good. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle at times or uh, that, uh, you know, we, we, our faith uh, falters or our faith becomes weak at times or we wonder and wrestle and all of this. But the thing is, never forget what God has done for you. And even in those times when you begin to doubt and you begin to wrestle and, and struggle and, and your faith feels weak, even as David would express that in the Psalms, get your focus back on the Lord and what he's provided for you and what he's done for you. But we never want to take for granted the blessings of the Lord in our lives. And they did, and, and where they had been. It reminds me so much of, remember that Jesus wrote a letter to seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And the very first letter is so important for us to consider and remember. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says to them as he commends them, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and you have not become weary nevertheless I have this against you that you've left your first love and that's such an important word for us they were a busy church they were doing all kinds of good things but they left their first love and the Lord gives them very important instructions he says remember from which you have fallen repent and do the first works So the three R's there is remember. Remember how when the Lord saved you, how you were forgiven and all just, you know, everything looked new and and you're a new creation and your outlook on life and just the the weight of sin and and shame, you know, lifted from you and, and remember what it was like and then repent and then, you know, return. 
is the third R. Do those first works. Go back. Have your devotions. Be in fellowship. Worship the Lord. Do those things. And then, and then there's a fourth R that I like to add. Not that I like to add to the Word of God, but re remain there is the fourth R. Remain there. Remain in that place. And maybe you're listening tonight and, and your heart has been a little cold towards the Lord. Your love, you're, you're still busy. You might be even serving. You might be even reading your Bible. But we need to always remember this, that his desire for us is always to be in that place of loving him and really fellowshipping with him and enjoying him. And maybe tonight, maybe the Lord might be saying, remember from which you have fallen. Remember how close you were. Now you're cold. You're distant from me. Repent and return. Do those first works. Worship him. You know, we want to have the joy of the Lord uh, for our salvation rest restored. That's what David would pray. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, Lord. And stay close to him. And, and return to him, our first love, and always remain there. And in verse 23, And when it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, whenever the word woe is used, it's not good. That you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. So, you know, there is, there is pagan worship all over the place. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be a, a, a Horbed. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, the very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. He freed them from Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. He's saying, why do you want to go back to Egypt? Why do you want to act like them? You know, we've been delivered from the world. Why do we want to go back to the world? Why do we want to, you know, prioritize the world? And here he says, you committed harlotry with the Egyptians. Verse 27, therefore I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiated and such a bull. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and, were, and still were not satisfied. So as we read this, even the other nations were shocked at their behavior. And it really is sad when the world is shocked at, you know, the behavior of the church or a Christian or somebody who's well known. You know, that all of a sudden it comes out and, and they were involved in, in that which is, which is sinful and um, the world and all of this. It's just, it's, it's sad to hear that. And the Philistines, he mentions the Philistines, that at least they were faithful to their own God. You know, the other nations were faithful to their pagan gods. It was not a good thing. But the question is, are we faithful to our God? How much more we should be faithful to the Lord? And then in verse 29, Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the, of the traitor, Chaldea, and even then you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds uh, of a brazen harlot. And so again, the analogy of a harlot, you committed spiritual adultery is what you've done. And you're not even satisfied. 
You can pursue the world, that which is false, and you will not be satisfied. You will not be content. It will leave you empty. It will leave you unfulfilled. Because satisfaction in a true sense of the word and contentment and fulfillment comes from the Lord and knowing him and worshiping him. That's why Jesus said, I come to give you life and life abundantly. I want you to have joy and peace and really have purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in life. It only comes by the Lord. And in verse 31, you erected your shrine at the head of every road, again saying that, and built your high places on every street. Yet you were, were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all her harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. You are the opposite of the other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. So remember, God has made you know, this nation his queen, betrothed. Jerusalem was to the Lord, uh, the wife of the king. And now you've played the harlot. They were paying others to show them how to satisfy their own flesh. You know, Lisa Harlot got paid for her services, but here they were paying others. God had given them everything, and they were giving it all away, and it didn't make sense. And as we read verse 35, that he says, they're just going to take advantage of you and abuse you and leave you in a terrible situation, verse 35. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of all of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all of your nakedness, verse 37. And I will judge you as we continue reading as a woman who, uh, as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. And I will also give you of their own hand and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take uh, your beautiful jewelry and leave you naked and bare. So he's talking about this is what's going to happen. He said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to judge you, but I'll, I'll give you into their hands and this is what they're going to do. And, and all the nations that should have seen them governed by the Lord as we read this and clothed by God are now going to see their nakedness and be a source of that and as God is going to deal with them. They should have been a witness to those nations, how God took care of them and how God provided for them. But you gave yourself over to those idols, over to that which is false, that which is wrong and wicked and abominable and God's going to bring judgment on them because they refuse to repent as we go into verse 40. They also will bring up an assembly against you and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. There's going to be death and destruction. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the 
harlots, and you shall no longer hire lovers. So I will lay to rest my fury towards you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to your abominations. And, and here as we see that he's, he, you know, he, he says to my jealousy should, uh, shall depart from you. The Lord said, I'm a jealous God. He was not jealous of those idols. He was jealous for them. And he's jealous for us because he doesn't want us to go off into that which is false, the world, idols, you know, false things. Because he knows it's going to bring harm and hurt to us. And so he's jealous for us. And in verse 44, indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughters loathing husband and children and you are a sister to your sisters who loathe their husbands and children your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite so here as we continue reading the first part of Ezekiel's proverb is an analogy between God and an adulterous wife the second part is we go from chap, uh, verse 44 to the end of the chapter is an analogy between Jerusalem and her sisters uh, Samaria and Sodom and if Jerusalem's wicked sisters receive judgment for their sin, then how could Jerusalem, who is depraved, escape judgment? So Ezekiel, he, he, he says, speaking the words of the Lord, you're like a, a mother-like daughter. The traits of the parents were seen in the children. Her mother had despised her children, her husband. Verse 46, your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters, to the north of you and your younger sister who dwell in the south of you is Sodom and her daughters. You did not walk in their ways nor uh, act according to their abominations. But as if there were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. Interesting. You did worse than Samaria. That's a reference to the ten northern tribes of Israel who had a terrible history. We've seen that. Nineteen kings that were all idol worship and it went from bad to worse. And you might recall in Jeremiah chapter 3 that the Lord was speaking to the house of Judah and says that you should have learned from your sister Israel. And because you didn't, you have done worse than she. Israel was more righteous than, than Judah. Now Judah had some good kings that came along like Uzziah and Hezekiah and Josiah, the last of the good kings. But they should have learned from Israel, who was involved in idol worship and the worship of Astaroth and Baal. And they didn't. And here, you've done worse than, than Samaria. Uh, and he continues, as now he speaks about Sodom in verse 48. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was... The iniquity of your sister Sodom, she and her daughter, had pride, fullness of food, and an abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Interesting here that Sodom was a city here and he indicts them. But it's interesting. We all know about Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. And when we remember and think about what is written about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's about perversity and uh, sexual immorality and homosexuality and all of that. But it's interesting here, as Sodom is indicted, it, it speaks of the iniquity of your sister Sodom, verse 49 
her, her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away. It's interesting. There's no mention specifically of immorality and that perversity. But they were prideful. They were prosperous. But yet they were greedy, interesting. Um, they didn't have concern for anyone. They were ones that it led to idleness. And they gave themselves then over to sin. And I think that's really a message for our nation of, you know, that, that you know, they were very prosperous. And, and what is interesting is, uh, as we live in a very prosperous nation, if we become prideful and as, you know, we become very greedy, if that happens, fullness of food, abundance of idleness and all of this, um, it's a warning that is given to us here. What is interesting is that when Jesus talked about uh, uh, the coming of uh, the, the um, Lord, uh, the coming of uh, his coming, he would talk about that his coming was going to be like, as I read it to you, likewise, um, as it was also in the day of, of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Interesting, Jesus speaks that to the religious leaders in Luke chapter 17. So he talks about that one of the signs of the coming of the Son of Man is like the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. The city was economically prosperous by culturally stimulating, but it was full of sin and rejection of the Lord. So it's really something to think about and ponder. In verse 51, we read, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and have satisfied your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. You who judge your sisters bear your own shame also, because of the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. And so Judah was worse when compared to Sodom and Samaria, in verse 53, when I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captains of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you uh, comforted them. So the rest of the chapter here is going to give some consoling words of restoration of actually all three sisters. And we read in verse 55, When your sister Sodom and her daughters returned to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters returned to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her and of the daughters of the Philistines who despised you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. So God bringing restoration to the nation of Israel. Listen, this is important and we're going to read it as we go through this, not because of their faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. That's important to remember. 
And as we finish the chapter, we'll wrap it up. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. This is a covenant that God has made with them. He says, I'm going to remember it. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you uh, receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because my covenant with you but I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Listen, the covenant God established with his people, you can go back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham cut the animals in half, and the idea was that both parties of a covenant would pass through the animals, ratifying the covenant. The word covenant means to cut. And if someone broke the rules of the covenant, it would make the covenant null and void. But in this covenant that God made with Abraham, as you read that section of Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was put into a deep sleep. And the glory of God passed through the pieces. So it was a unilateral, listen, a unilateral covenant based on God's faithfulness. God said, I will bring you back into the land. I will bring forgiveness. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit, the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of in chapter 33. And you see, the problem with the replacement theology that is spreading even and becoming popular in some circles of of evangelical Christianity is that God is through with Israel because of what they did in, in crucifying the Messiah. And all the promises given to Israel in that covenant is now null and void. And they have no future promise. God says here, I will bring you back. The house of Israel, we see hundreds of verses in the Old Testament pertaining to that. We see whole chapters pertaining to that. This section pertains to that because it's based on God's faithfulness, not the faithfulness of Israel. And so Israel is going to, in the future, as Paul says, as God cast away his people, Romans chapter 11, he says, certainly not. And he talks about the future of Israel, and he says, in that day, all of Israel will be saved. That there's going to be a national restoration that will come on the scene. And God has not abandoned his covenant with his people. They will be restored. So God has a plan for Israel. It's no accident. As we go through Ezekiel, he's going to talk about how that they're going to come back into the land and build the ancient cities, that dry bones are going to come alive. And and it speaks of a nation that comes alive. And then how God's going to pour out his spirit on them. We'll cover all of that as we continue journeying through Ezekiel. But absolutely amazing. He talks about in the Old Testament how they would go into captivity, but they're going to return uh, and Jeremiah spoke of that. You, you, I'm going to visit you after 70 years and you're going to come back. But also of a future time, and Jesus speaks of it, that you're going to go to all the nations. They're going to build an embankment around you. Of course, in Luke's narrative, he speaks of that. But you're going to come back into the land. And, and the Bible speaks of a return, and we see a partial of that when it became a nation in 1948. It's no coincidence And Israel is the epicenter of end-time prophecy. It's the focus of end-time prophecy. God has a plan. They will go through tribulation. The church will be raptured before the tribulation period. But then at the end of the tribulation period, as Zechariah's prophecy says, that their eyes will be opened. And they will say, where did you get those wounds? And he will say, I got them in the house of my friend. And there's a national restoration. 
God has not cast away his people. So I don't buy into the replacement theology. And what I see from Isaiah and Jeremiah and from Ezekiel is I will remember my covenant, he says. I will give you a new spirit and new heart. I will be your God. No more will you go after those false idols. No more will you forsake me. And it's a covenant that God will keep because it's a unilateral covenant based on his faithfulness. You know, we know that we have forgiveness of sin and eternal life based on the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's work as we come to him. And I'm so grateful for that. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words. And they really give us warning about we can go after Egypt, the world. We can go after those things that we think are going to satisfy us of the world, that which is false. But it's not. It's just going to cast us down. It's going to do us in. It's going to wipe us out. Just as Jerusalem was wiped out. And it's not going to bring the satisfaction and contentment that, that people are looking for. It's only found in a closeness with you. So I want to pray tonight. Maybe there's somebody listening here that, that maybe you're, you know, you're working hard. Um, you're going to church, but you have a coldness in your heart for love for the Lord. And that's where these things can begin, to begin to, to pull you away from the Lord. And the Lord is saying to you, I want you to return to your first love. Return to me. Remember what it was like when you first came to the Lord. You were reading your Bibles. You were worshiping him. You loved to, to spend time with him. You had the joy of the Lord. Lord, I want to go back to that. I want to go back to my first love. I want to repent. And I want to do those first works. I want to remember, repent. I want to return. And then I want to remain there, Lord. Stay close to you. Lord, I thank you for the new covenant that I get to experience a new heart because I come to Christ and a new spirit, a new beginning, a new life, that abundant life that you have for me to walk with you day after day because the world will just leave me empty. And Lord, I pray that you would reiterate that in all of us, Lord. So we thank you. We thank you that Lord, for these words, we thank you that we can study your word and be challenged and encouraged and admonished. And, and Lord, because you want the very best for us. And I do pray that we would stay connected to you, abiding in you, the vine, that we may produce fruit in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday. Enjoy the rest of your week. What gift of grace is Jesus, my